you would, please be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. As most of you know, we've been going through the book of Ephesians together in our normal teaching times on Sunday mornings. We've been going through, as is our practice around here, the entire letter, verse by verse, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, each week covering everything. But Lee's out of town this week and our normal teaching elder, so we're going to take a break from Ephesians, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. The subject that the Apostle Peter has set before us in the passage that I'd like for us to consider this morning is the unshakable hope of future grace that is ours in Christ, and the inexpressible joy that is found in setting our hope on future grace. Peter, you will remember, was perhaps the central figure and leader of the disciples of Jesus. He's a well-known, headstrong, and at times impetuous follower of Christ, especially as is recorded for us in the Gospels. He's a member of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. But despite the rocky highs and lows of Peter's beginnings, he becomes the spirit-filled preacher of the great sermons and early acts, the great Pentecost sermons of the early church, where hundreds and thousands turn to faith in Jesus Christ following the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And in the letter, uh, 1 Peter, that Peter writes, it's a pastoral letter to churches in modern-day Turkey. Peter probably wrote from Rome, and it was only a few short decades after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. The Christians in these churches were facing various types of persecution and injustices from low-level ridicule for their faith to more overt trials, and eventually the state of Rome would issue a full violent persecution against the Christians, and many of them would be martyred for their faith, including the Apostle Peter. And it's into these situations that Peter writes to comfort the believers and to exhort them to live for Christ in light of their present circumstances, and to be absolutely certain about the future that is theirs in Christ. And surely Peter's message speaks directly to us today as well. For some of you, this might have been one of the hardest years of your life. Perhaps the recent months and weeks have been filled with difficulty, the trials and troubles of life. Maybe it's health concerns, financial worries, It can be the fears that we see in the news, the terrorist attacks that we're always hearing about. It could be broken relationships, family tensions, marital stress, or parenting struggles, or just the exhaustion of daily life. All of these things come at us. Maybe you know what it's like to be mocked or dismissed or excluded for your faith in Christ, even within your own family or in the workplace. And the questions that come to us in these times Or what does the future really hold for me, for us? Does the future grace of God's promises to us in Christ have anything to say about our day-to-day life? Does it have any impact on the here and now, on today and tomorrow and how we live? And Peter says that it does. Peter says that as we set our hope fully on the grace that is to be ours at the return of Christ, on the hope of our inheritance, that it matters that it has an enormous impact on the day-to-day lives, on living for Christ today and tomorrow and next week. 
So let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read God's word? First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You can be seated. Well, we're not going to be able to cover every single word and phrase in this passage this morning, but there are, well, there's one thing, or really four aspects of one thing that I'd like for us to consider in the passage below that Peter has written. I want us to consider four things, four aspects of the hope that we have been called to in Christ. We're going to look at the ground of our hope. We're going to look at the glory of our hope or our inheritance. We're going to look at the guarding of our hope. And finally, we're going to look at and consider the goal of our hope. So ground or foundation, glory of our inheritance and our hope, the guarding or protecting of this hope, and the goal. So the first thing is in, that we find in verses 3 and 4 is the ground or the foundation of our hope. Peter begins the passage by praising God the Father for his work of complete mercy in giving us new birth. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has caused us, according to his great mercy, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And from the very beginning of this letter to these suffering Christians, Peter's tone is one of joyful praise and confident hope. He's not just being cheery to counter their dreary circumstances. But Peter is issuing a call, a call to rejoice in God, and specifically in God's unmerited mercy to them. This idea of mercy that he uses here, I think, carries with it not just the idea that punishment is withheld, but it, it carries with it positive favor, God's positive favor, his, his grace toward us. Let's turn, if you would, with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I know I said just a moment ago that we were going to take a break from Ephesians, but you can see that I was only telling half the truth. And the reason I want to look at this passage is because Peter, or excuse me, Paul in this passage in Ephesians, talks about what God's mercy looks like. He, he sort of expounds on the unmerited mercy of God. So let's look at verse 4 and, and following. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love 
with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we looked at that passage just a few short months ago. And I think that passage describes what Peter means in our passage by mercy. It includes not just, again, not just not being punished for our sin, but God's positive favor toward us, his sovereign work. The Old Testament had a term that the Old Testament writers used called hesed. It's a Hebrew word that basically means, uh, it's the word that's used when, when, when God says to the, the Israelites and to Moses and to others that he is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. The Greek translation of that idea is this word mercy. God's favor toward us, his positive covenant love towards his people. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a, a document that in question and answer format uh, d- describes the Christian faith to new Christians and young children, puts it like this. After discussing mankind's willful sin and fallen condition in a state of sin and misery, the Westminster Confession asked this question, or the Catechism asked this question. Did God leave all mankind to perish in their sinful condition? Did God leave all mankind to perish in their sinful condition? And the answer given to that question is this. From all eternity, and merely because it pleased him, God chose some to have everlasting life. These he freed from sin and misery by a covenant of grace, and brought them to salvation by a redeemer. It's those words, merely because, his good, merely because of his good pleasure, that is the ground of our hope. It is God the Father's good pleasure towards sinners and rebels that is, that is our, our foundation. Peter calls this great mercy. Peter goes on to say that this mercy issues in being what he calls born again. So we see in the next set of verses that he has this mercy, according to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We are born into new life with new hopes and new loves. The idea of being born reminds us that we didn't do anything to deserve this or earn this. We can't boast about being born. You were just born. And God's action is what gives us new new life. And it's the same thing with our spiritual new birth. Peter is not just making this idea up. This isn't a new idea that he came up with or that Paul or, or, or any of the New Testament writers came up with. This had been prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, here in chapter 1 later on, as Peter's writing to these Christians, he tells them that these things have been prophesied from of old. You'll remember, perhaps, the new covenant promises and prophecies in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, where the great prophets write that God would give his people a new heart He would put his spirit within them and write his law upon their hearts. They would be born of the spirit. In John chapter 3, John records Jesus talking to Nicodemus, a very famous passage in a conversation, where Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But Peter says, 
to these Christians, you have been born again, indeed born of the Spirit. And then he tells the believers two things about this new birth. The first thing is that they're born to something. They're born to a living hope. And we're going to unpack that under our second heading, under the glory of our inheritance. The second part of, of this born again, that he, this new birth that he tells them about, is that they are born to a living hope through something, specifically through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You remember the story of the resurrection Sunday morning as recorded in the Gospels. Mary Magdalene sees Jesus, and she sees that the tomb is empty, and she runs and tells the disciples, and Peter and John run to go to the tomb to see for themselves. And John's younger, so he gets there first, but he stops at the entrance, and Peter, kind of typical Peter, impetuous and bold, rushes right in, and he sees that the tomb is empty. And of course, later on, the resurrected Christ himself would appear to Peter and the other disciples. Peter had seen the risen Christ. He had seen the empty tomb, and this changed everything for him. And he says here that this resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, issues in spiritual new birth for believers and for those who belong to Jesus Christ or for those who are united in faith to Christ. In this way, though the world awaits its final renewal and though our bodies await their renewal, in a spiritual sense, by the Spirit, Christians already participate in the life to come. We have been raised with Christ, as Paul says, by the Spirit of Christ. Note the Trinitarian way that Peter speaks here. He talks about the mercy of the Father, the new birth of the Spirit, the resurrection of the Son. The doctrine of the Trinity, according to Peter, is not just some abstract, impractical thing, but it is the way that God relates. It's who God is and how he relates to us and works in us as Father, Son, and Spirit. His mercy toward us, his loving kindness toward us, is Trinitarian mercy. He invites us into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This, then, is the first aspect of our Christian hope, its ground or its foundation. It is grounded in the mercy of the Father, the resurrection of the Son, and the regenerating work of the Spirit. The second thing that we're going to look at is the glory of our hope, or the glory of our inheritance. Though this new life in, through this new life in Christ, we're brought into a glorious inheritance. We're made heirs of God himself with his son, Jesus. And Peter now directs our attention to the future grace of this incredible inheritance. He uses three superlative words to describe it. Three, three words that kind of jump off the page at you as you're reading this passage. He says it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The content of what this inheritance is is discussed elsewhere in, in the New Testament. But simply, it's Jesus' inheritance. It's, the, if nothing, nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth. We become, some of you might remember if you've been in church or, or been in country churches, the old hymn that says we're joint heirs with Jesus as we travel along. We are heirs with Christ of all that belongs to him, and we will share in his glorious inheritance. Peter wants the believers to set their hope on this, rather than looking to this life only. Peter learned this heavenly perspective from Jesus. The verses we read this morning that Aaron read for us in our scripture passage in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Peter would have been sitting right there as Jesus preached to the crowds and taught them. And he heard the words, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are persecuted, who mourn now, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. They shall inherit the earth and see God. And the one that really stands out for our passage today, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus presents this now-then perspective that orients our thinking. And Peter would have learned this at the feet of Jesus. Here in our passage, he uses three superlative words to describe just how glorious is the glory of our hope. So the first one is imperishable. Peter calls it a living hope because Christ is alive through the resurrection of the dead. And because he's alive, our hope is alive. And in fact, like Christ, our hope can never die. It is imperishable. Jesus explains this to John in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. If you remember, John is near the end of his life one of the last remaining of the 12 disciples, probably the last remaining of the 12 disciples, and he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And on the Lord's Day, he has this great vision, which he records for us in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 1, it begins with Jesus himself appearing to John. And John is struck with fear at this view of the risen and exalted Christ. But he says this, John says this of Jesus, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying to John, I've conquered death. I'm alive forevermore. And he didn't do this just for himself, but for John and for Peter and for all of his people. He himself is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Peter says to these Christians, Your inheritance is as certain as the life of Jesus himself. This life is perishing, isn't it? We don't like to talk about it or think about it, but it's quickly passing for all of us. If you have health struggles or worries or loved ones who pass, it's an it's a instant reminder, a poignant reminder of how quickly this life is passing. But Peter tells us that our inheritance with Jesus is imperishable and in fact undying. So set your hopes here, he says. The second word that he uses is undefiled. Our inheritance, he says, cannot be cheapened or stained or tainted by worldly sufferings, troubles, or griefs. It's not tarnished or tinged or contaminated. This might seem an obvious thing, but I think often the troubles and trials of this life can be right in your face, so to speak. And it's impossible to see past them. They take up all the space in our hearts and in our minds. They drain our emotions and our energy. And we think it's, it's hard to imagine that they're not going to bleed in to the future hope that we have. But, but Peter says that this promised inheritance is undefiled. Think of it like this. Have you ever been looking forward to a great meal, a meal with your spouse Uh, maybe an anniversary date, or a special meal out with friends, perhaps a a holiday feast, Thanksgiving or Christmas, where everybody's coming together. You're so excited for this, this feast, this joyous time. 
But just moments or hours before the event is to, to occur, something happens and it spoils everything. Maybe the kids have a major meltdown. You have one of those same old spats or fights with your spouse that seem to come up at the wrong times. And you get to the long-awaited meal and it's tainted by what's come before. Your pleasure has been spoiled by the trouble and frustration of life. But Peter says that our inheritance is not like that. It will not lose its luster. It will not be stained or contaminated even by the greatest troubles of this life. We will enter into fullness of joy. Again, to quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism, in question 37, the Catechism asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ in his return? And the answer that is given is this, raised in glory, believers will be publicly declared not guilty, and this is the important part, and made perfectly happy in the full enjoyment of God forever. Undefiled, complete joy in God. The third word that Peter uses is unfading. Peter says that our inheritance will not darken or fade because Christ himself does not darken or fade. There is no shadow of turning as we often sing in God himself and in Christ. In that same passage that I talked about a moment ago in Revelation chapter 1 when Jesus appears to John, in, Jesus, in John's description of his vision, he says of Jesus that his eyes are like fire and his face was like the sun in full strength. There was no fading here. Bright as the sun. I think one of Satan's temptations is to make us think that our eternal hope, our eternal destiny in heaven is foggy and distant. It's, it's faded. But our inheritance is unfading. I think Satan wants to make us think that this life is the real thing, the solid thing. But notice Peter takes the exact opposite view, just like Jesus. For some reason, this idea of unfading made me think of the original Back to the Future movie, if you're old enough to remember it, with Michael J. Fox. You remember Marty McFly in 1985 climbs into his DeLorean, which is a time machine, and he travels back in time 30 years to 1955 when his parents are first in, are in high school and are first meeting and falling in love. Well, Marty manages to mess, mess up everything between his parents. They don't even know who he is. But he, in a sense, breaks them up or stops them from ever falling in love initially. And Marty has taken a picture with himself of him, of him and his two siblings from 1985 when they are full grown. And as the picture looks more, or as the story looks more and more bleak, the love story between his mom and dad, if you remember, the picture begins to fade. And one by one, each sibling fades away as if they never even existed. His future is fading away. But the future of our hope will never fade. There's an old hymn that talks about this, that, the, that this life, though it's fading, our future life is solid and lasting. The hymn is, Glorious things of thee are spoken. I'm sure if you've been in church long, you may have sung it before. And the last couple lines of the final verse go like this. Fading are the worldling's pleasures. Worldling means someone who is putting their hope and trust in this world. Fading are the worldling's pleasures. All his boasted pomp and show. 
but solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. We have solid joy and lasting treasure as the children of the living God. So this is the second part of the hope that we have in Christ. It is a glorious thing, a glorious hope to be a Christian. The third thing that I'd like for us to consider, again, is the guarding of our hope. Peter actually tells, talks to the Christians here about a double guarding. The first part, he says, is that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. If you would, let's turn to John chapter 14, and we're going to look at the first couple verses of John 14. In this passage, in this passage uh, there's a set of chapters here, John 13 through 17, that's known as the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. Jesus is having the last supper with his disciples, his final meal with them, and he's sharing his heart, his burden for them, right before he's going to be arrested and crucified. And Peter's sitting there around the table with Jesus, and he hears Jesus say these words. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says that he has gone to prepare a place for us. That he himself is keeping our inheritance sure in heaven. He's guarding it. The second thing in this double guarding that Peter tells us is that God is guarding you. He tells the Christians, amidst their trials, amidst their troubles and suffering and persecution, God is guarding you through your faith until the end. And this was personal for Peter. I don't think this was just something he wanted to share with them. I think this was something that, that was very central to his experience as a believer in Jesus, that God guarded him and kept him by faith amidst the ups and downs and trials of life. Think about Peter's personal life for a moment, particularly as we see it recorded for us in, in the four Gospels. Peter had his ups and downs. You remember he confesses Christ, he confesses the good confession to Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When, when Jesus asks to the disciples, who do you say that I am? He makes the good confession and Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so you can almost sense Peter's got to be swelling with pride and so excited he got the right answer to the most important question. But just a few verses later, Jesus is talking about how he's going to die and be raised again. And Peter tells him, no, Lord, it's, it, this shall not be. And Jesus looks him in the face and says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of this earth and not on the things of heaven. And again later, Peter has the boldness, the faith to walk on water. But he looks away and he's fearful and he begins to sink. Or remember in the garden when the arresting officers in Gethsemane come to arrest Jesus. Peter cuts off one of the ears of the arresting officers. And immediately Jesus turns to him and says, put your sword into its sheath. This is not the way. And then, perhaps the most poignant one, 
when Jesus is telling the disciples that they're going to face hard things and fall away, Peter says, no way. I'll never fall away. These guys, they might fall away because Peter thinks he's here and the rest of the disciples are here. He's struggling, isn't he, with his pride. But he says, I'll never fall away. I'll die for you, Jesus. And Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times, basically before the sun comes up. And sure enough, he did. Peter's not an example of a strong and unfailing faith. Peter is an example of a strong and unfailing Savior. There's another scene, a very sweet scene, in John chapter 21, the final chapter in John's gospel that he records for us on the beach. You may remember reading of it. It's after the resurrection, and Jesus has been appearing to the disciples, but they've gone back out. They're fishing again in the lake, and they see Jesus on the beach. Peter jumps out and swims to shore to see Jesus, while the other disciples have to bring the boat in. Again, his impetuousness and boldness. And Peter takes, or Jesus takes Peter aside, and he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Jesus, or Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he tells Peter to feed my sheep. But then he does it again. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you, Peter says. And then a third and final time, Peter, do you love me? And you have to think at this point that Peter's eyes are welling up with tears. He's got to realize what Jesus is doing here. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus is restoring his faith. He's guarding Peter and keeping him, even amidst Peter's struggles. And his final words to Peter, he says, you follow me. We follow the master the Lord Jesus in faith, not depending on our own strength, but Christ himself restores us and keeps us. It's trusting in our faithful Savior. It's saying, yes, Lord, I love you. And he keeps us and restores us. So this is the third component of our hope, the guarding of our hope. The final thing that we find in our passage is the goal of our hope. Peter says that the goal of this living hope is nothing less than full and final salvation that will be ours at the return of Christ. But notice the present tense. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You believe in him. You rejoice now with inexpressible joy and filled with glory. And you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These things are happening now. The hope of future grace echoes back into the present. It sustains us. It draws us. It strengthens our faith toward the goal, toward the purpose. Peter's saying there's purpose in the present trials of life. I don't think it often feels that way, and I don't think we can often see what those things are or know the purpose. But Peter says, nonetheless, for Christians, these sufferings matter. Just as Jesus had said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, that those who are persecuted now are blessed. Paul says something similar in a well-known passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. He says that these light and momentary afflictions 
are working in us an eternal weight of glory. Now, that's for Paul to say light and momentary afflictions is a pretty big deal. I mean, Paul was imprisoned and shipwrecked and beaten. He gives us a record of those things. And he says these light and momentary afflictions. Why? Because they're working in us something far more substantial, far more solid, and far more lasting, an eternal weight of glory. This now-then mindset that Jesus has introduced, that Peter is teaching, and that Paul himself taught as well, this now-and-then mindset is essential to the Christian life. It orders our reality, and it orients our hearts within the circumstances of life. It gives us a true north, that final goal. It draws us onward and lifts our souls, and it calls forth a rejoicing from the heart of the Christian. Blessed be, as Peter says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This then is the fourth point, that the goal of our hope is nothing less than the fullness of joy and fellowship with God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit forever. A few points of application and then we'll be done. The first thing, as we seek to apply what it looks like for us to rejoice in this glorious hope that is ours through Christ, is that we rejoice in the face of trials. Now, that's really difficult, admittedly, and it seems impossible at times. I don't know if you've ever come across the passage in James 1, verse 2, where James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it all joy when you face trials. I think sometimes we read that and think, are you serious, James? How do we count this as joy? But notice he doesn't say, feel happy. Feel happy when you face trials and suffering. He doesn't say that. He says, count it as joy. In other words, think clearly about what's happening. Think clearly about what we just talked about, that these trials and struggles and difficulties produce in us an eternal weight of glory according to the sovereign work of God because he's caused us to, to be born again, to have new birth into this new life in Christ. Peter says that the trials that grieve us have a purpose. They refine us. When we're at a loss for words because of our struggles, when we're sorrowful beyond, beyond thinking, when we're persecuted or broken, or when we're just exhausted with daily life, where will we turn? Where will we place our faith? When we turn to Jesus in these moments, when we place our hope in him, when we look to his perfect work and the perfect hope that is ours because of his resurrection, our faith is proved genuine. As Peter says here, that, that our faith is proved genuine through the testing of trials. The second application is that we are called to rejoice in the glory of our hope. Like the first century Christians that Peter wrote to, we haven't seen Jesus. Mark mentioned that in his prayer. Yet we love him and believe in him. And Peter did see him. He saw the empty tomb. And he calls us to rejoice with him, with an inexpressible joy and filled with glory. Because this hope of glory 
matters for the here and now. And as we rejoice in it, as we look toward that, we are able to face even the hardest things with faith and hope. And the final application is to prepare for action. In verse 13 of this chapter, later on, Peter tells the Christians that after setting your hope on the grace that's coming to you, prepare your minds for action. This glorious hope of future grace is not pie in the sky. It's meant to energize us, to motivate us, to be poured out for Christ, to follow him, to serve him, to love others. You think about, again, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus explains this now-then perspective, and then he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Give generously. He's calling these, these who are poor and needy to give generously. He says that we are called to bless those, even those who hurt us. And when you really stop and think about it, it's an incredible calling. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. So let us rejoice in our Heavenly Father because he's given us a living hope. It's grounded in God's sovereign mercy. He gives us a glorious inheritance. He's guarding us by his power, and he's guarding it by his power. And its certain goal is our final salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We praise you because you have caused your children to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's based completely on your mercy. We have not merited it or earned it, but we are given it by your free grace if we will trust in Jesus Christ. We know it doesn't make our lives easier in the here and now, and oftentimes it makes them harder. We find that trials and troubles, whether from suffering or from our own sin, is always right at hand. But you promise to keep us. You promise that if we will look toward this hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that's kept in heaven for us, that if we trust in you, you will refine us, you will restore us like you restored Peter, you will keep us, and we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So Lord, now I ask that you would assure our hearts of your kindness and your favor towards those who belong to Jesus Christ and that we would trust in him with everything we have, looking to our glorious hope that is wrapped up entirely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.